0: So I have to confess a little bit this morning, and it, may, it probably doesn't shock most of you, but I can get easily distracted. Um, and I know many of you can, because I watch you every Sunday. Um, but I, I can get really distracted, and, I, and I, if I'm really honest, I probably have what's well, adult ADD? Um, my wife would confess that that's probably true, and if anyone who works here in the office will tell you, I get, I'm most productive when no one else is here, or when they all go home at the end of the day, or when I leave and go somewhere else. Um, I'm easily distracted. I like to procrastinate a little bit. I need to give self-imposed deadlines. I, I'm not afraid of working. It's just I need a deadline, maybe you 're like that, but what i 've found is that when i 'm distracted by other things, then my primary thing, what I really need to get done doesn 't get done Have you ever found yourself there that the thing that 's most important is what gets pushed aside for what 's urgent or what 's right in front of you we 've probably all done this, and so i 've been thinking about that a lot this week as as I look at um, the way the church has responded to various things in the world, the way we think and act and live and so i 've been, I've been thinking how if i 'm honest, if, if we saw anything this week, we saw that um, politics seems to divide people. Yes, it's probably a necessary evil in the world in which we live, but but it can be divisive. So my my comment for us today is this. How about for these next forever, not, not just for a couple of years, but how about forever, how about those of us who follow Jesus find that primary, and let's be careful not to get too distracted by other things. I think if we're not careful, the church loses its voice in places in the world because we're so caught up in political endeavor. And so maybe if we put that much energy into helping people know who Jesus is and the way he calls us to live and the way he loves us, I'm pretty sure we would radically transform the world anyway. Um, So my challenge to you and to me, because I've been as guilty probably as many of you, is for us to become a people who are so enamored with Jesus that that's where we find our identity and that's the agenda we push And we recognize the call of the church is unity in the world. It is not uniformity, but it is unity. And this idea that if we become people who follow Jesus, we find that in that, our hearts are radically changed, and the other, whoever the other is, we find that we care more for them. Um, But this idea of being distracted, I don't think applies just to us. I don't think it applies just politically. In fact, I think it really is part of the issue with Jonah. We've been talking these last several weeks about the story of Jonah, and we, we've been looking at the way this Jonah story um, impacts our lives, and if, and if we're honest, we look at this, and some of us go, well, I'm not sure this story's even real, and, and if it makes you feel better, about half the scholars agree with you. They're not sure it's real either, but what they all agree with is there's a good truth for us to learn in the midst of this story of Jonah. And so we talked the first week about how Jonah, Jonah exemplifies for us how God loves us enough to let us go where we want to go. At the same time, we recognize that our decisions have repercussions in our lives, and they sometimes impact other people. And then last week, we talked about how in the Jonah story, that, that Jonah began going in a direction away from God, and the further he went down, the more the storm in his life came up, and he found himself in this place of Sheol, the place of the dead, Hades, hell, whatever you want to use. And in, in his prayer, he says, I'm at the root of the mountains. He found himself in a place that, that was underneath the mountains a place that seems so filled with hopelessness that there's no way you could possibly find hope in life. But what we find in the story of Jonah is that from that place of hopelessness, he knew there was one who had called him, who had spoken into his life, that said there is no place of hopelessness in life. No matter how far down you may think you are, no matter how much to the bottom in the place of hell or Hades or Sheol that you may be in the deep of life, God is still present, and there's still hope in the midst of that. And so in the Jonah story, we then see that Jonah finds himself in this, this place where, where he's trying to figure out what to do, and so he's just crying out to God, and God, God hears his prayer, and he answers his prayer, and the fish vomits him up on dry land. And we talked last week even how, how God delivers us from things, but sometimes there's still the junk that stays on us. I mean, just imagine being in, in the belly of a great fish, the stench, the, just, it's gross, But you find yourself back on solid ground because God does deliver and redeem in the midst of that. So there's no place that we can go that's so hopeless that God is not present. This week, we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3, and I invite you to stand as we read from Jonah chapter 3. Jonah writes these words. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 says this, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim, it, proclaim to it the message I give you. I, I'm just going to stop for one quick second, but you'll notice that Jonah keeps telling us that God's giving him a message, but he never tells us what that message is because he's kind of embarrassed, I think, about what he probably actually said. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now this story begins just like the whole book does. It begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Only this time... Jonah hears God's word, and instead of running the other direction, he goes towards God. And, and Jonah heads to the city of Nineveh, which is this great city in the ancient world. In fact, at the time of, of this writing, is believed to be the largest city in the world. And so, I, I, I mean, New York is the closest thing I can think of. I know it's not the largest city in the world, but for many of us, it's the largest city we can think of off the top of our heads. And so he heads to this large city that takes three days to walk through, and he gets to this place, and he begins walking through, and he just tells them, hey, um, repent. I mean, he, he's not real emphatic or excited about what's going on. In fact, he doesn't really want to do this, but but he goes about yelling in 40 days. In 40 days, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be overturned. And for whatever reason, Jonah's speaking, and people hear. And they probably don't really hear the voice of Jonah so much as they hear the voice of God calling to them through Jonah. And and led by their king, the Assyrian people, who had enslaved Jonah's people. And those people have now become exiled. They're back, they're heading back home. And, and Jonah's speaking back into them. So this is a person, Jonah, who is who used to be enslaved by this kingdom. And so he's coming back. And so there's probably something to be said for the message that comes from one who used to be enslaved in this place. Jonah goes back to these people who had enslaved his people and says, Hey, God wants you to repent and turn your life around. God loves you and has compassion on you. I'm not sure he used those words quite so eloquently, but, but what we begin to see is God wants to redeem these people. See, Jonah knows the story of Abraham, the story of, of God's people, the story of God coming to him and says, Hey, Abraham, I, I want to make you great. I want to make your nation great. I want your name to be great. I want you to be a blessing to the world. And so Jonah knows this really is the story of God's people, that if he's one of God's people, they're to be a blessing to the world. That is the call on their lives. He's run from that, but he knows who God is, and so he heads back in that direction. And so the king and others hear this about this God who says, even though you enslaved my people, I want to redeem you. If we're honest, it sounds a lot like the story of Jesus, who comes into the world and paints a new picture of who God is. He comes into the world and says, here, I want to tell you who my father really is. I want to point out the ways that we've gotten it wrong. And so the Jewish leaders of his day, many of those religious people of his day, the church people of his day, had created their own agenda. They'd been distracted by their own desires and not by the desires of God. So I started thinking about this week when I started thinking about the fact that, that um, for lack of better analogies, if I were to use this analogy, if, if I was a surfer, which I always am envious because it looks like it would be a lot of fun um, to surf, I have no skills in that area, but I fall off skateboards well. Um, but, but surfing looks like it would be fun, but if you watch surfers, they paddle out and they paddle out. And then if you watch like, all these videos or movies of stuff, they, they kind of hang out in the water and they keep waiting for waves. And waves keep going by them, but they don't get on them. In fact, the really good surfers keep watching what look like good waves to the rest of us, and they just watch them pass by. They might paddle out a little further, but they just kind of hang out and wait. And what I notice is that they know which wave they want to ride. They know what is the good wave that will take them all the way to the shore, or the good wave that will provide a great ride. They they know. See, I think what happens in this story is Jonah, Jonah begins to recognize that that, that God has started a wave. And there's not much Jonah can do to stop this wave. He can either ride the wave or try to fight against it. And so he rides the wave in, and it's that it's the God is already at work in Nineveh. God is already at work in these people. And so Jonah hops on the wave that God has already started. See, it's not that Jonah did anything incredible. I mean, he listened, yeah, and he spoke, yeah, but it really wasn't all that incredible. But Jonah had been so distracted by his own agenda, by his own desires, that he had missed that God had already started a wave that was heading to Nineveh. See, I think if we're honest, if we're not careful, we get distracted. We're paddling in the wrong directions, or we're taking the wrong waves. They're not the waves God has for us. There may be the little small ripples that go by, and we think this will be great, and we hop on, or we, we go in the other direction like Jonah did early in the story. But, but what would happen if we dream big dreams? What would happen if we recognized God was already at work in the world and there are already big waves starting? What if we began to recognize that really is true, that God is at work in the world? In fact, God has started big waves that will be like the Nineveh in our day. That a whole people would turn to him. What if we began to look for those waves? What if we dream big dreams? What if we came out of the places of Sheol, out of the places of, of the deep, out of the places of hell in our lives, out of the places of desperation? And recognize that God called us to be something greater. See, in the Genesis story, the beginning of the Bible, there's a a kind of a theological framework we see in the first chapter. In the creation story, we get a picture of the way God wants to redeem the world. We see it through what we mentioned about Abraham earlier, but but in the Christian story, on day one of creation, God God separated light and dark. Day two, he separated out sea and sky, the waters above and the waters below. Day three, he separated out dry land. So the first three days are all about separation. Day one, light and dark. Day two, sea and sky. Day three, dry land. In days four, five, and six, God fills what he separated on days one, two, and three. Day four is related to day one. Day one was light and dark. Day four then is filled with sun, moon, and stars. Day two was a separation of water and, and sky. So he fills it with fish and birds. Day four. Day So that was day five. Day day six, he fills what he separated on day three. He separated out dry land, so day six, he fills it with animals and people. So we see this picture of God. He separates out days one, two, and three. He fills on days four, five, and six, and day seven is Sabbath or blessing. But see, what we begin to understand is this really is a theological framework for God's people, that they're called to be separated out, that God separates us out. He fills us with his Spirit and he sends us back into the places we've come from to be a blessing to the world. This was the call of Abraham. This is also the call for us today if we say we know who God is. God separates us out, he fills us, and he sends us back to be a blessing. So we've been in the places of Sheol, the places of desperation, the places of despair, the places of death in our lives. God calls us to go back into those same kinds of places and bring hope where there was no hope before. This is the story of Jonah. God calls us to be a blessing in the world, to go back to the places, but but sometimes we don't want to do that. Or sometimes we're wondering and we're asking this question, can God really bring hopeless people to the place of hope from us? Can God really give hope through you and I, ordinary people? Can we really go to places like Nineveh where it seems like they're so far from God, but yet we go there and God will redeem and restore that? And what would happen if we begin to say, okay, God, I'll, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be a blessing to the world. What if we really said yes to going? See, I came across um, Scott Harrison's story a few years ago, and um, ever since then, it's kind of left me speechless. Scott Harrison founded a, an organization called Charity Water, and it's really Scott's story about the way in which God started a wave, and he hopped on, and it led to greater places. So we're going to watch a video for, for several minutes. I know I'm cheating and preaching, but, but it's good, so it's worth it.
1: water. It's in our history, in our mourning, and even in our dreams. It's in the sky and the earth and in us, both angry and playful. always there. Like a spring just beneath our feet. Plants, animals, and people gathered around it like their lives depended on it. Because they did. They still do. As you watch this, there's the same amount of water on Earth as there was when it was formed. It stays the same, and yet it is always changing. Solid. Liquid. Gas. And just like water, our lives can change forms too. And we can become something else entirely. My name is Scott Harrison.
0: (laughs) Just listen.
1: This is my wife, my son, and my one on the way. I lead an organization called Charity Water. And our mission is to bring clean water to everyone on the planet. I live in New York City now, but I didn't always. I grew up in suburbia, and this was my house. My dad was a businessman, and my mom was a writer. They loved each other, and they loved me. We were a happy family, until we weren't. When I was four years old, my mom collapsed on the bedroom floor. We'd just moved into a new house, and our house had a carbon monoxide gas leak, but none of us knew it until then. She didn't die that day, but her immune system did. She became allergic to everything—perfume, the ink from books, radio waves. She wore strange masks all the time and was often connected to oxygen. The toxic gas destroyed her immune system, and in a way, my childhood too. After the poisoning, our roles reversed, and I began to take care of her. As the only child, I had to be a good one. I learned to cook, do laundry, and take care of the house. I was a good Christian kid who played piano in church and wanted to be a doctor when I grew up to help sick people like her. Until I turned 18. Music was my escape. So I joined a band and moved to New York. Um, right about the time when the band broke up, I got involved in um, producing these like live music shows in the city. I realized that you could actually get paid in New York City to drink alcohol for free. This job was called a nightclub promoter. So you just had to get beautiful people in the clubs. And if you got the right people in the clubs, you could charge guys $500 to buy a bottle of champagne. that cost you 40 I moved from club to club to club, filling up the VIP section and flashing my Rolex to the club photographers. For almost 10 years after that, I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day and was out drunk almost every night. I was into strip clubs, gambling, and just about every drug except heroin. On New Year's Eve, uh, we all went to Punta del Este. Uh, it's a kind of party town in Uruguay. We rented this incredible house with cooks, waiters, and magnums of expensive champagne. Although it looked glamorous on the outside, there was a long decline in happiness. I remember just feeling so unhealthy about it all. The next day, the party was still going, but I wanted the music to stop. I was spiritually bankrupt, I was emotionally bankrupt, I was certainly morally bankrupt. I tried to find my way back to a very lost faith. I wanted things to be different. I left nightlife, sold almost everything I owned, and decided to take one year off to try serving others instead of myself. I'm applying, I'm filling out these long applications for these very credible humanitarian organizations that have long histories. I put in the applications and then I wait. And I guess I should not have been surprised, but I am denied by all of these organizations. They won't even let me volunteer because of my past. So they're like, what do you do again? (laughs) We're serious people. Thankfully, one organization says, if you pay us $500 a month, you can volunteer with us. So I said, here are my credit card details. Where are you guys going? They were an amazing team of doctors and surgeons who traveled the world on a hospital ship. They specialized in removing facial tumors, and they were going to Liberia, one of the poorest countries in the world and a country I'd never even heard of. I say, I'm gonna sign up and be your volunteer photojournalist. I'd always taken pretty good pictures and photos and love telling stories. Everything in my life changed. I decided in one fell swoop to kind of never smoke again, to never touch drugs again, you know, to never gamble again, to, you know, to swear off pornography in strip clubs and just, I needed to walk so far in the other direction. And I walked up this gangway and this became my new home. Nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to see. Hi, my name is Scott. I think we may be able to help you. Um, you I met a man name, name, named Harris. Like he was room. suffocating to death with a benign tumor. I got to see Harris's transfer, amazing surgeon named Dr. Gary Parker.
0: So we, we've got to get your blood nice and strong for an
1: operation, huh? Dr. Gary had moved his entire family on the ship to volunteer for a short time. That was 29 years ago. he just never left. I'd never met anyone with that kind of dedication before. Very happy we can uh, schedule. He'll spend Christmas here. First, uh, first good Christmas in 13 years. Yes! <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, yes! A couple weeks later, I got to take Harris back home to his village with an entirely new face, ready to start a new life. The uniform that's put on people when
0: you have these terrible deformities is you're rubbish, you're worthless, you're spiritually cursed, you're. And when you can change the uniform, it's huge. And the person starts to imagine that they might not be rubbish after all. No one. And our world
1: is rubbish. There was one day when more than 5,000 sick people came to see our doctors. Some of them had walked for more than a month. But there were too many of them and we just didn't have enough doctors. I remember holding my camera, crying. We had to turn thousands away. We were changing individual lives every day, but I wanted to do even more. I'm documenting these life-changing surgeries. But I started to spend more and more time out in the rural villages. And as I would travel around these villages, I would see the most shocking things. About 475 people living here. This is what they're drinking. You can see there's bugs crawling around in it. I'm sort of putting this together, saying, look, thousands of people are turning up sick. And the most basic need for health isn't even met. It wasn't OK. Kids shouldn't be drinking from scummy swamps, or ponds, or rivers. <laughs> He came here to fetch water. Yeah. And a crocodile okay. fell into the river. And a crocodile snatched him. Disappeared. Not even a body was not found. There were so many diseases caused by bad water: cholera, dysentery, trachoma, bilharzia, things I'd never even heard of. On top of that, I found out people weren't just drinking this filthy water; they were breaking their backs to get it. Women and girls are usually the ones responsible, often walking for hours every day. As a result, many girls never make it through school. They trade in their education and dreams to carry 40 pound jerry cans so their families can have water. Dirty water is responsible for more death in the world than all forms of violence, including war. Even if it were a million people, this would be a crisis. But it's not one million. It's 663 million people that live on our planet right now without access to clean water. That's twice the population of the United States. Nearly one in ten people worldwide. Behind those statistics were real lives people who were dying because they couldn't get clean water. And many of them were children. <laughs> I began to become really interested in the, the water issue and, and who was doing something about this. How come more people weren't talking about water? I came back to new york city ready to go so it started with a party it's the only thing i knew how to do i was a nightclub promoter so i got someone to donate a club i threw my 31st birthday party i got 700 people to come out i lured them with open bar and i charged them 20 bucks at the door and this time instead of pocketing the fifteen thousand dollars we took it immediately to a refugee camp in northern uganda we built three wells we fixed three wells and then We sent the photos and the GPS and the story back to those 700 people. This was a big deal. People could not believe that a charity would bother to report to them on a $20 gift and that something actually happened with the money that they could see, that they could connect with. 700 people proved that we could make a difference, even $20 at a time. This was the beginning of Charity Water. As I'm talking about setting up a charity, I realized that so many of my friends don't trust charities. In fact, I learned that 42% of people in America alone don't trust charities. From the beginning, I was determined to do things differently, and I had a few big ideas. First, we'd handle money differently. From day one, Charity Water made a bold promise that 100% of all donations would go directly to clean water. I opened up a separate bank account for overhead, and we never touched the water money to pay for things like staff salaries, office rent, or travel expenses. We started looking for generous people with the resources to cover those overhead costs. Second, we proved each water project we funded. We put photos and GPS coordinates on Google Maps, and even attached GPS trackers to drilling rigs so people could follow them. Later, we created and installed thousands of remote water sensors, so we'd know that the project continued to work over time and even how much clean water was flown. Third, we believe for the work to be sustainable, it had to be led by locals. Water and sanitation program creates an enabling environment so that all aspects of development can take off. In the beginning, usually a handful of people were in the office every single day and. It was funny back then because we were trying to look so professional and put together when if you just walked in the office and saw how we did what we did, we had no idea what we were doing Uh, and we were just making everything up
0: as we went.
1: We built outdoor exhibitions, staged water walks, and designed ads that made people think differently about water. We got space on buses and taxis donated, spreading the word to everyone we could. We took over the windows of luxury retailers and created a TV commercial that ran for free to more than 20 million people. People started to take notice and thousands began to donate. People all around the world started donating their birthdays to raise money for clean water. A seven-year-old named Max went door-to-door asking for $7 donations and he raised $22,000. Maggie Moran gave up her 16th birthday Nona Ween gave up her 89th My 28th birthday for Charity Water My 25th birthday 39th birthday 25th 36th 38th 44th And this movement of birthdays begins to spring up And people said, look, I don't need any more stuff That's exactly what Rachel Beckwith said She heard me speak a few months before her 9th birthday And told her mom that instead of presents or a party She wanted to raise $300 To help kids get clean water to drink instead She was disappointed when she didn't reach her goal, but she raised $220 and her mom assured her it was good enough. She could try again next year. She never got that chance. A few weeks later, Rachel lost her life in a car accident.
0: Well, just at nine years old, Rachel Beckwith already had a legacy. Hers was charity water. NBC's Lee Cowan explains how even now, Rachel Beckwith continues to make a difference.
1: Hundreds of strangers started to give $9 in her honor. Then it became thousands. Within weeks, Rachel's fundraising campaign had raised over $1.2 million for clean water. The heart of this nine-year-old girl inspired 32,000 people to give. But it didn't stop there. 80,000 people pledged their birthdays like Rachel. Some people said, I can't wait until my birthday. I just need to fundraise now. I need to do something about this now. Guys shaved their beards. Complete strangers started climbing mountains to raise money for clean water, walking and biking across countries, sailing across oceans.
0: I've been giving up Christmas gifts for five years. I've raised just over 32,000. I did 12 lemonade stands for charity water. I waste $10,000 for clean
1: water. Rachel reminded us that Charity Water wasn't just our story. And she's now been joined by over 1 million people, helping us fund over 20,000 water projects that will bring clean water to 6.3 million people. And I got to see just how much impact one life really can have when I took Rachel's family to Africa. We greatly love Rachel and continue to love her family. And I'm overwhelmed with how greatly you have honored her memory. Please receive my most deepest and heartfelt thanks. You've done us a great honor today. So thank you. Yeah. Rachel, you will such a big hurt from a young age that she understood and felt the pain of others on the other side of the world is the most beautiful gift a person can give.
0: God's story embodies this idea that if we begin paddling in the right directions, if we hop on the waves that God has already started, and he hopped on Mercy Ship, and while riding that wave, he saw another wave that God was starting, and began an organization called Charity Water. I mean, their goal is to end all unclean water in the world. Um, last time I heard, I don't know the numbers. It was about two billion dollars he he's hoping to raise in one Sunday if every church that we gave, gave on that day. We're, we're not going to collect today. If you want to give, you can go to their website and do that. But but what Scott's life embodies is this idea that God is starting waves all over the place. This is the story of Jonah. God had started a wave in the people of Nineveh, and Jonah was just the messenger to carry God's word there. See, I wish I could tell you today exactly what God wants us to do. I can't. I wish I could tell you today exactly what wave God wants us to ride. I don't know. Our board's talking about that. Our staff's talking about that. We want to know what that wave is, but we don't know. But what I can tell you is this. If we begin paddling in the right directions— If we paddle in the right directions with our lives, if we follow after Jesus with all that we are, if we don't get distracted by the things in our life, and if you notice Scott's life story, he talks about the distraction of about a decade in New York. See, it's easy for us to get distracted by the various things in our everyday lives. It's easy to get distracted by by even good stuff and politics or education or whatever. But if we're not careful, we miss that Jesus calls us to follow him. And what I can't tell you is what the wave looks like, but I can tell you what the paddling looks like. It looks like the passage of scripture that Jim read earlier. For you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, love your enemies. You've heard it said, hate your enemies, but I say, pray for those who persecute you. I can tell you what it looks like it looks like gentleness, it looks like compassion, it looks like love. See, I don't know what wave God wants us to ride. I don't know what wave God wants us to ride in our lives, but I know this. I know there are Ninevehs all around us that God wants to do incredible things if we are just faithful. So what we do, we paddle every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday and every time one of our community groups gathers in someone's home. That's part of how we paddle. And we keep paddling, hoping we catch the wave that God wants us to ride. And we do this as a response to a father who loves us. As the praise team comes back, we're going to sing, um, actually I'm going to change it, we're going to sing a different, let's sing the song we started the service with today. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning and we're, we're going to sing a song um, that God would wake something inside of us that we would become more and more aware of the waves He wants us to ride, that we become more and more aware of the way God calls us to paddle in the right directions, to not be distracted, but to be a people who are wrapped up in God's love and His grace and His mercy. <laughs> And may we be a people who ride the wave that God has for us. Father, we thank you this morning for the way you continue to be with us. We pray that as we prepare to sing this morning, that you would guide and direct our conversation, that you would help us as we reflect on the way you continue to love us. And may we be a people who, once we come to know the way you love us, who live our lives in such a way that we paddle in the direction you have for us. So Lord, we pray today that you would guide and direct all that we say and do. We pray today that you would help us to be your people, that reflect your love, that, that even though the went kind of begrudgingly, we pray that we wouldn't go in that, that attitude, that spirit, but we would go with open arms, full of love that comes from you through a son who gave his life up for us. And so this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.